The information provided on this podcast is not legal advice and is intended for the sole purpose of providing education and legal information. Laws change over time, and the information provided on this podcast may not be up to date. We make no warranty, express or implied, regarding the information provided by our team or our guests on this podcast. The information should not be construed as legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with us or any of our guests on the podcast. If you would like to consult with an attorney, please call 1-800-VICTIMS. That's 1-800-842-8467 for attorney referral contact information. This podcast provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and information to help educate crime victims on their rights. Some content will include topics and materials that may involve descriptions of violence or assaults which can be distressing to victims and survivors. It may also impact service providers experiencing vicarious trauma. Welcome back to part two of our discussion. Let's pick up where we left off. So Blake, I want to transition now and, uh, and talk to you a little bit about T visas. Um, so maybe we can start by, by first getting a, you know, an idea about what, what a T visa is. Sure. And let me start by just giving a little bit of background in terms of like the work that we do at the clinic. I think we're mm-hmm. going to be speaking about special immigrant juvenile visas in a minute. But mm-hmm. the, the vast majority of the work that we do at the clinic are U visas, VAWA applications, juvenile applications, which we'll be talking about soon, and asylum. We handle very little uh, applications for individuals applying for a T visa. And our hope, you know, and our continued hope is that individuals that qualify for a T visa will either self-identify or be uh, identified by law enforcement. Because so what an individual who may qualify for a T visa is somebody who is a victim of human trafficking. Okay, and so that's somebody who is being trafficked either for, for forced sex or for forced labor. And, um, you know, we can, we can talk a little bit about, about it, but, you know, mm-hmm. there are certain questions that, that uh, you know, are relevant just to start the conversation with somebody, which might include, you know, so did you have uh, the ability to freedom to travel while you were, uh, working in this particular place uh, was was it a was it a work where you know that you know after you were done uh, you know you could leave or where where you went was controlled by your employer you may ask questions also about um, was alcohol or drugs something that was provided to you uh, as part of your employment you know, so you're also looking at how, what was the workday like? How long was the workday? Uh, was your pay given to you regularly? Was your passport taken from you? So th- these are some of the kind of identifying or maybe exploratory questions you might be asked uh, by an attorney. And the reason why they're asking those questions is to start to think about whether or not you were either, you know, victim of the sex trafficking or victim of labor trafficking, because uh, it's a it's a fairly broad uh, definition about what it what it means when we look at it. And essentially, it's an individual who's been recruited, they've been held, or they've been moved by force, by fraud, or coercion for the purposes of a commercial sex act or labor. So it sounds like with the amount of with the sort of multitude of factors that we're looking for a degree of control mm-hmm. from the employer to the the employee or, or in this case the the victim. Yeah. So in for ex- in some of the cases that that we've seen uh, include uh, 
labor trafficking where the person was uh, maybe promised uh, a good job, uh, promised a, a work visa, and then so came to the United States under the assumption that they were going to have a, a, a good paying job, a legal job even. And uh, then the facts were trick, you know, changed essentially in that case where the individual was working at a, a restaurant uh, long hours. And then at the end of the shift, they were taken in a van and, and kept in a, in a garage. Uh, and then the next day brought back to the restaurant to work long hours. And, uh, and then, you know, the cycle continued. So that exactly is your point is the, the control that, uh, that the employer was holding over the individual. It seems like in, in, in that case, there was a very a limited amount of free movement that was uh, that the, the survivor, the victim in that case, was able to um, was able to exert over their own life. Would you say that's pretty common in, in uh, T visas? Yes. Uh, other cases that we've seen is and you know, so this was the, the case one and one classic example you think about uh, with trafficking is being brought into the United States hmm. uh, on account of trafficking. But actually, the, so the, the law, what's the law requiring is that they're in the United States on, on account of it. And so we have hmm. seen like, you know, trafficking within the United States from from one state to another state, for example, also counts as human trafficking, even for immigration purposes. Now, with relation to the the T visa and the U visa, you mentioned with the U visa that it's um, essentially provides a deferred action. Uh, it provides um, a temporary relief. Uh, how does that relate to the T visa? Is it similar? Well, they're very similar, and so the reason why the U visa provides that deferred action initially is simply due to the number of applicants mm. and the number of visas available. So it, it's a process. So first, the individual gets the deferred action until there's a U visa available. Uh, but Congress has set 10,000 visas available for U applicants every year. Same thing for T visas. But there are significantly less applicants for a T visa than for a U visa. Just as I mentioned, uh, you know, in our clinic, we've only had, I've been at the immigration clinic 10 years at this point, and we've really only handled, I'd say, less than 10 T visa applicants. Whereas, uh, you know, I, I couldn't count the number on the others. So, and I think it's the same, that's a common trend nationwide. And so there's less than the statutory cap of mm, applicants made every year. So in a way, it's a faster process in terms of getting that T visa. But they're very similar in the sense that a T, somebody who qualifies as a, a victim of human trafficking is eventually going to get a permanent resident status uh, after they've been on the T visa for three years, they can make that application exactly the same as the U visa. The difference is that it goes a little bit faster because uh, the, the statutory cap is never met. The, there are some additional benefits. You can think about an individual who might qualify as a, a survivor of human trafficking is going to need access to resources quickly. And Congress has made it possible for even applicants for a T visa to get federal benefits to help them protect themselves and get their uh, their feet grounded even before they get the T visa. If they're in the application process, they can qualify for refugee benefits, which include potentially housing benefits, includes potentially some limited cash aid and other health benefits while they're even in the process because Congress realized that this, this individual may be in a particularly vulnerable state 
at, especially at the initial stages. I see. That, that is uh, very interesting. And as far as the steps for applying for a T visa, are they similar uh, with respect to, to a U visa? They are pretty similar. So for an applicant who's over 18, they have to cooperate with reasonable requests for law enforcement. One material difference is you don't need that law enforcement to sign the certification. If you remember when I was talking about the U visa, mm-hmm. I said law enforcement needs to sign it. If they don't sign it, we're done. Certification, yeah. Yeah, that certification. Whereas for the T visa, you the law enforcement you need to be willing to cooperate with law enforcement and their reasonable assist and reasonable requests for assistance, but you don't need the certification. There's no mandatory requirement that they sign this uh, form that was created by immigration. So what you may have, for example, is uh, some correspondence between the law enforcement agency. It's frequently uh, the FBI or the U.S. Attorney's Office. State, you know, like reporting a crime, for example, or just that communication as, you know, to see how the the the, the crime was investigated. Uh, at the very least, you need to show that uh, for individuals who are over 18, that the crime was reported. I see. And that may even speak to the self-identification uh, that you talked about earlier. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, as far as the um, some more information about T visas, if there's possibly someone uh, listening that either uh, might self-identify as a uh, potentially someone who would be interested in in a T visa, or, or you know, if one of our audience members knows someone who might qualify for a T visa, would you recommend the same? Um, either organizations or the same groups for for more information? I would. And I would also uh, mention WEAVE in Sacramento, which is Women Escaping a Violent Environment. And there's also My Sister's House in Sacramento as well. Both those organizations are excellent at helping survivors of, of trafficking. And we'll also provide the information for Weave and My Sister's House in the uh, in the podcast descriptions. If there's any listeners outside of the Sacramento area um, that would like assistance, you can also reach out to either Weave or My Sister's House, and they can certainly provide some uh, additional resources in your area if you don't happen to live in the Sacramento area. Now, uh, Blake, you did mention a little bit earlier in our discussion the special immigrant juvenile status. Uh, I'd like to now bring up that uh, that part of our conversation here. Can you talk a little bit about the special immigrant juvenile status and maybe give an idea to our listeners as to what it is? Yes. So the special immigrant juvenile status is for individuals who are undocumented that were either abused, abandoned, or neglected by at least one parent. And it's in their best interest to remain in the United States, and it's not in their best interest to be returned to their native country. And so it, for, the most, for most individuals, it has to be uh, that they're under 18. There is an exception sometimes for individuals under 21, but most is under 18. And, and why is that? Because it requires, uh, there's a, this is an additional step, it requires a state court, like a family court, probate court, juvenile court, dependency court judge to make, a de- make that factual determination that I was just mentioning, that the, that the child was uh, abused, abandoned, or neglected by at least one parent, and it's in their best interest and not in their best interest to be returned to their home country. So that finding is actually not made by immigration. It's made by 
what's called a juvenile judge, but a juvenile judge is just any judge that has jurisdiction over minors, which are, are those that I mentioned. So the reason why most of the time that the, the child has to be under 18 is because a lot of these courts lose jurisdiction once a, a child turns 18. For example, a, a judge can't make a, a custody determination for a, a young person who is 19 years old. The, the one exception is, is guardianships. And so in guardianships, we have a specific rule that California, or statute that California passed within the last couple of years, which extends the uh, uh, jurisdiction of judges to make guardianships for young folks who are under 21. But that just, just in guardianship. So for most, we're, we do our outreach at high schools and um, community events, and we want to get the word out to people to be informed of this law because you're dealing with a particularly vulnerable individual, right? Somebody who is generally a child and then has been uh, abused, abandoned, or neglected by at least one parent. So we're trying to get some information out into the community that this is... Uh, something to at least have some basic understanding of so that if, if somebody's identified or knows somebody in that situation, they can reach out to community organizations and law firms and, and get further assistance. Now, now with respect to the, um, the standard, the beneficial to stay in the United States, because there's a state court that would need to be involved, I'm assuming that the the standard as far as the factors that play in will differ from state to state. You did mention California. Perhaps you could maybe talk a little bit about what would, why one individual might be adjudicated beneficial to stay in the United States and perhaps why another would not? Yeah, so what... What we're looking at and, and the factors that we think are important are, you know, why, what are the conditions uh, in that individual's home country? So mm. what, um, who can take care of them? Where, you know, where are their care providers? Are they in the United States or, or are they outside the United States? What are the general conditions uh, for the country in which they're living? A lot of the clients that we're helping in this situation happen to be from the Northern Triangle, which is El Salvador. Guatemala and Honduras, and these are very dangerous uh, countries for these young folks to be living in. They gen we, we're seeing kids who have been threatened by gangs um, and otherwise harmed. You know, so we're we're looking at that, and we're looking at okay, where is the care provider? Frequently, there's a there's a care provider here. You know, we we've seen children who aren't able to go to school in their home country because of the just the dangerousness of getting to school. So we look at, okay, how are they doing now in the United States? Are, are they able to go to school? Do they have somebody that's looking out after them? Are they safe? So those, those are the factors that, that, that we think are important. Now, if there are some uh, listeners out there who might know a, a child that's in a position where they're being um, either neglected, abused, or, or abandoned, 
Is this something that you would recommend they reach out to an organization first, or would they? Would you recommend they might reach out to the the police first, uh, assuming that there needs to be some sort of adjudication w- with respect to the courts? Yeah, no, I would recommend that they reach out to attorneys, and so we we handle these cases, and I think most of the organizations that I missed, listed earlier do as well. And uh, nationally, nationally, the, there is Kids in Need of Defense or Kind which is an excellent organization and is a, is a great place to reach out to for assistance. But yeah, so the first they would want to speak, speak with a, an attorney to see, to get a full consultation and see if um, they might be eligible to, to proceed this uh, application. And what sort of documentation would, would need to be submitted in order to, uh, I guess, uh, prove one's, one's status? Yeah, so, well, so these are individuals who are without status right now, right? So they're without legal status, but in in terms of that first application with the family court or the juvenile court, I'll say, it it can be proved by declaration alone. We'll frequently have a a declaration by the, the child, and then we'll have potentially a declaration from a caregiver that, you know, is not, not in a, the one that's the providing actual care for the child. We may have a, you know, in the, the state of California by statute is stated that a declaration alone can be sufficient to prove those facts. Uh, you, you may decide to submit additional facts of country condition reports of the home country to show, to educate the judge about how it would not be in that child's best interest to return to their home country if, uh, you know, the region where they're from is, is, is uh, violent and unsafe. Uh, but it's it's not by it's it's not required. But it might be helpful. It might be helpful to submit evidence to show that the child is doing well in the United States. That they're attending school. That they're they're able to you know potentially obtain insurance, um, and that they're moving forward with their life. I see. Now we talked about the T visa as as not being. Uh, a- in an extremely long process in compared to the U visa. Uh, how does that uh, work for the special immigrant juvenile status? Well, by statute, uh, when, once you get the finding from the juvenile court, which may take a, a few months depending on the, the jurisdiction that you're in, but once that's, that finding is made, you're able to make the application with immigration. Uh, it, it, the that form is similar to the VAWA form. In fact, it's, we use the same form when we submit it with that immigration. It's hmm. uh, a long, long form that uh, uh, covers a lot of things. But the statute requires that immigration respond within six months. But we're seeing that uh, that there is a lack of compliance with the current law. And so uh, it's taking about a year and a half or more to get uh, the immigration agency that's in charge of reviewing these petitions to uh, make a decision. Once they do, then we get into that situation again of how many visa or how many immigrant visas are available for that category of young folks under SIGIS applications. And for most countries, again, there's a backlog. And so although you have an approved petition, you may have to wait a little while before you can make an application for a green card. The difference between the T visa and the U visa, not to overly complicate things for the listeners, is that there is no non-immigrant status for somebody uh, that's a juvenile in this situation. They go from undocumented 
to a green card holder or permanent resident. There is no kind of middle step of uh, deferred action or then T visa or U visa. It's simply uh, once that petition is approved, when there's a visa available, then you can make the application for a green card. No, and that was going to be my uh, my next question was, is there sort of some sort of deferred action step that's going to be in between uh, gaining a, a permanent residency uh, or some sort of um, uh, green card? Yeah. Um, but it, it sounds like it, um, it it might be a little bit more straightforward. There isn't. And yeah, it, it's straightforward, but, the, but it can be difficult for individuals since there is no deferred action uh, kind of middle ground when that uh, child is waiting for a visa to be available to submit their green card application, they are still without status. So that means they can't get a work card, they can't have authorized employment, and that can make it very difficult for for somebody you can think about, you know, somebody who is, um, you know, a teenager or a young adult uh, wanting to either continue studies or to enter the workforce. It, it It can be a challenge. So uh, it's something to be aware of. We'd also just say, so what we, when we are providing a consultation for somebody in this situation, we're always also looking at uh, issues related to asylum. Does the, does the child or the young individual uh, maybe qualify for asylum? Are they afraid of uh, returning to their home country because they think that they could be persecuted? Uh, so we look at that as well when we're doing a, an assessment. And I'd like to maybe uh, bring up the the issue of asylum and just perhaps ask a, a couple questions on it. H- how can a asylum uh, benefit uh, or, or be be useful for uh, a victim of crime or a survivor, um, just generally speaking? Yeah. So we're looking. I mean, so it's always it's always part of our full assessment of an individual is why did they come to the United States and are they afraid of being returned to their home country? So. Generally, somebody who's making an application for asylum needs to submit that application within their first year of coming into the United States. But there are exceptions. Uh, And so you can imagine some of the individuals we've been talking about, like somebody who might have been a victim of domestic abuse. They've lived in the United States for a long time. Uh, So then they're not they're going to have a little they're going to have an issue of that one year bar. And so then what we would need to see is if there is. Well, first of all, is there a good asylum claim that they should consider submitting the application? But two, are they going to be able to overcome that one year bar issue? And the ways to overcome it is potentially showing either exceptional circumstances such as maybe. um, You know, common factor might be a mental health issue. Or is there changed circumstances? Have things changed recently that now uh, give you rise that reasonable fear of returning because of a fear of persecution? But there's also exception on the one year potentially for children. Children is not necessarily able and informed to make an application for asylum within their first year of coming to the United States. So they they may have a, a, a reasonable argument that the one year bar doesn't apply to them. Uh, as long as they're still minors. And just so our audience has a, has a full picture of, of asylum, can you talk about the the elements that one would be required to show to make a, a good claim of asylum? Sure. So the individual has to show that they have a reasonable fear of future persecution based on membership in a, 
uh, excuse me, based on a protected ground, and that that persecution is either going to happen by the government or by a group or individual that the government is either unable or unwilling to protect against. And so with the protected grounds, the, you know, the traditional grounds that, that most people maybe know of or would recognize when they hear them are things like persecution based on your religion, persecution based on your race, persecution based on your political opinion. But there's also another protected ground, which is protected based on your membership in a particular social group. And, and that is um, an area of increasing litigation. And in, as, as we try to grapple with what does that mean? Uh, some of the earliest cases in interpreting it have said, for example, membership uh, in a family would constitute a social group. So if you're persecuted based on your membership in a family, maybe it's based on your sexual orientation can be social group. Uh, can gender be social group? It, you know, so it, it, the definition is certainly under litigation and is certainly um, some are, you know, dis, you know, there's some dispute exactly about what it means, but that, that gives you a little bit of an overview of some of the, mm -hmm. the basic things that we think about family, sexual orientation. And asylum can be made, a claim for asylum rather, can be made even up until the, the one year mark of, of an individual living here unless they uh, qualify for one of the exceptions, correct? Right. So if they, if the, ideally the individual makes the application within the first year of entering the United States, uh, and, and if they don't, then they would need to show some exception, as you mentioned, the exceptional circumstances or chain circumstances. And if they're unable to do that, then they're looking at uh, related relief, which is not, uh, not as uh, more difficult and provides less rights. Asylum, eventually you're allowed to obtain permanent resident status, that green card, and then a pathway to U.S. citizenship. If, if you would be persecuted based on a protected ground, but you made the application late and there's no exception that qualifies, the individual will get what's called withholding of removal. So the United mm. States is part of treaties that state that we won't send somebody back to a country where they're going to be persecuted. And so you would get withholding of removal. Uh, and I think this is, you know, this is going a little deep in here, mm -hmm. the waters, but the individual be protected, they would have uh, the ability to get uh, protection from removal, they're not going to be deported while that fear uh, continues, and they might get a work permit, but they're not going to get the ability to apply for permanent resident status. I see. And uh, if any of our listeners uh, have any questions either about the special immigrant juvenile status or, or asylum, could you, could you provide one more time um, maybe some of the list of of organizations that they might want to reach out to? Yeah, certainly. So in the Sacramento Central Valley area, I'd be reaching out to our immigration clinic at McGeorge Law School, 916-340-6080. But there's other excellent organizations in our area, including Opening Doors, including CRLAF, which is the California Rural Legal Assist Assistance Foundation, excuse mm -hmm, me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then outside of our area in the Bay Area, an excellent organization is Central Legal in Oakland. And um, as I mentioned before, they're, they're an, they uh, are a 
sort of an umbrella organization that would be a great place to start for somebody who's outside our area looking for resources. And once again, we will provide the links and the phone numbers for all of the resources that Blake mentioned in our podcast description. Blake, thank you so much for coming on the podcast here today and uh, discussing all these very interesting topics. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Nima. Thanks so much. Now that you've heard the show, please take a moment to rate and review it. And if you have any questions about any of the information you heard today, you can reach the Victims of Crime Resource Center at 1-800-842-8467. Or you can reach us online at 1-800-VICTIMS.org or Facebook at Victims of Crime Resource Center or Twitter at 1-800-VICTIMS. If you haven't had a chance, please take a look at some of the other episodes in our series. Thanks for listening.